Hi, everybody. Just a quick note. You might have noticed that I Think You're Interesting popped up in your feed a day later. That's right. The show is moving to Thursdays. You'll hear the same fascinating conversations with interesting guests just in time for your Thursday morning commute. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandor of the I and I Think You're Interesting and it's May. I'm talking to some of my favorite writers this month. And today we're talking with Nell Scavell. She is a TV writer who has written on some of my favorite shows of all time, The Simpsons especially, but Late Night with David Letterman. She wrote on Newhart. She wrote on Murphy Brown. She created Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She's done so much and I, I've loved so much of her work. Let me tell you about this. I'm a junkie for reading books about the process of making TV. I think I've read all of them at this point. <laughs> Nell's is one of the best I've read. It's a memoir of her time in the TV trenches. It's called Just the Funny Parts. I think if you like reading about entertainment stuff, or even if you just like reading funny books, you're going to like it. But here's the thing that's really fascinating about this book is it's a fun and funny and heartwarming memoir about her figuring out what her life was going to look like from being a child in Massachusetts to working in the television industry. But at the same time, it's a story about being one of the only women in a lot of comedy writers rooms in the 80s and 90s and how difficult that could be and the psychological effects of that and it all kind of culminates in the last section which is largely about how she co-wrote the book Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg which I'm sure you've heard of. Nell tells some great stories. She told me some great stories including several that aren't in the book. If you take nothing else away from this podcast please check out the book. I think you'll really like it. But also, I think you're going to enjoy hearing Nell tell some stories about her time in the Hollywood trenches. I know I did. My guest is Nell Scovell. She's been a writer on so many of your favorite TV shows, from The Simpsons to Late Night with David Letterman to Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which she created. And she's also the author of the memoir, Just the Funny Parts, Newly in Bookstores. It's one of my favorite TV writer memoirs ever. And I've read like a lot of them. And this one is, it's so funny, but it's also like so insightful about the process of writing. So thank you for writing it. Oh, that's very nice. You know, it's, it really is about the three things I love most, which are comedy, creativity, and equality. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's kind of where I want to start because a thing I noticed, especially in the first half of the book, when you're just talking about like launching your career, getting into the position where you were writing for The Simpsons, et cetera. Every so often, you'll just have an aside, be like, I was the only woman in the room, or all of the other writers were male, or something like that. You don't like make a point of it, but you always point it out, and you're building this case for what the second half of the book becomes. And I just want you to talk a little bit about like the experience of being the only woman in the room on a on a TV show and a movie. Like, you know, in the last year or so, we've started really having this conversation as a whole culture about equality and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering, like, can you talk a little bit about those experiences? Yeah. Well, I get out of college in the early 80s, mm -hmm. and I think uh, gender inequality has been solved. Gloria Stein, and we have Roe v. Wade, Betty Friedan, they've been beating the drums. And so I really walked into the work world thinking, okay, there, there was this problem, but I'm in this great first wave, and it's just going to keep going. It didn't quite work out that way. But early on, I just wanted to blend in. You know, I 
love doing what I was doing. You know, I get to Letterman. I'm the second woman who ever wrote for that show. The first was, of course, the great Meryl Marco. Yeah, a legend. Yeah, She'd been gone for two years. They hadn't had any other women. And I get there, and the last thing I want to do is call attention to my gender. Uh, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the chapter about Letterman, which later in the book you talk about, is that you had kind of a, a cordial relationship with Dave while you were working there, and then that people were assuming things about that. Yeah. And that was something I had never really thought about. So, like, what that experience, what, what did you learn from that? People who have read the book come away with the, this insight that I am conflicted about David Letterman. He He's a giant. You know, in the 80s, he reinvents comedy. You know, back then, it, there was Johnny and there was Dave. And Johnny was your parents. And, you know, Dave was the cool kid. So I really wanted to work on that show. So many great writers had come out of there, you know, from Andy Breckman to George Meyer, my old friend Kevin Curran. And I just desperately wanted to be part of that club. So I keep sending him material and I go off and I'm having a a sitcom career. I work on Newhart the last season. I'm writing a Simpsons. And finally, I get this call from Steve O'Donnell saying, Dave would like to meet you. And when I get there, Dave was one of the nicest people to me. He'd stop by my office. He'd say things like, do you need anything? Can I get you some soup? And uh, so I was a little taken aback when one day in the writer's room, someone made a comment about, well, maybe I could pitch an idea to Dave while he was in my office. The implication was he was paying attention to me. So I started closing my door 10 minutes before. He always came in at the same time because I really didn't want to be perceived as someone who was there for any reason but my talent. And I say in the book, like, well, that was a very admirable thing for me to do. It was also very stupid because Dave was the ultimate source of power on that show. And cutting myself off from him voluntarily was not probably the best thing for getting my work produced on that show. There is a section late in the book you talk about the revelation that Letterman made in 2009, I think, where he said yeah. he'd been sleeping with staffers. Uh, the creepy stuff was that I have uh, had sex with women who work for me on this show. Now, my response to that is, yes, I have. When you were on the show, like, was that tension in the air, that sense of, like, Letterman was creating an environment that had sexual harassment within it, like, just sort of baked into the core of what that show was doing, you know? Yes, although it was pre-Anita Hill, so we didn't have vocabulary. Like, you know, I just thought the place was fucked up, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. that was the technical term. And I want to be clear, I wasn't harassed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just Dave. And that's the thing. When, when you're in these situations and it starts at the top, it does give permission for others to act in that, to think it's okay. Right. And by the way, some office romances are perfectly fine. It, it is problematic when it is a manager or someone who has the ability to hire and fire people. Right. Tell me a little bit about, like, 
the psychology that develops from being the only woman in the room. Because I think you write really smartly about like wanting to be a writer first yeah. and foremost and not wanting to be a woman writer. But then as you got later into your career and you, you like you collaborated on, on the book Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg, which, of course, big bestseller, famous book. Like you started to <laughs> Someone think. Someone said, who knew the big coin was in feminist literature? <laughs> <laughs> like you started to think about it as, yes, I am a writer, but also I am a woman. So tell me about like the psychology of what that does to you when you are the only woman in the room. Well, it's our culture, you know, so as much as I wanted to blend in, forget that I was a woman, the business kept reminding me and in small ways and big ways. And the big ways were in the way I was paid, in the way I was viewed. And I I make this leap from half hour to hour Mm -hmm. at one point. And I'd been an executive producer in half hour, and I understood I would have to take a step back. I've now been writing dramas, I think, for 19 years, and they still have not given me the executive producer credit. I have other male friends who made the leap, and within two years, we're back to being executive producers. Mm -hmm. One of the chapters I really wanted to write was actually about money, Mm -hmm. and um, my first uh, draft was 110,000 words, and I could only turn in 80,000, um, so I didn't get to write that chapter. That is one place, and it is where you can compare, you know, there's data, there's hard data. Right. How Like, how, how well do you know about that? Because for a long time, it was just like sort of a, a whisper network of like, this is who gets paid what. But now it feels like we're getting more data on that. We're getting more knowledge of how systemic the problem is. So like, how much do you know about pay rates and things like that? Like how, how much, I guess, how much does like the WGA, I guess, would be the governing authority that would talk about this? You know, one way men can help women is to share their information on their salary. I remember when I made my deal for NCIS and I asked my lawyer point blank, is this on the low or the high end of consulting producers and just a heart sinking moment when he said the low end. That was a moment when I went, oh, why after all this work and experience am I on the low end? And part of it is I think they don't fight as hard for female writers, they being agents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would get a lot of offers and be told it's take it or leave it. Right. And my agent would say, so are you going to take it? And I, I would tell them, no, you're going to go back and and negotiate. You know, I think the responsibility ultimately lies with showrunners to make rooms that are staffed of, you know, that represent the diversity of the country. I do think a lot about the agencies. Like the agencies have a part in this that we haven't really talked about. And I'm wondering, like, if you've thought about that problem of, like, agents finding people other than straight white guys, you know? I want to challenge what you said about it's up to the showrunners, Mm -hmm. because I actually think the way you change the system is by changing the system, and that the studios and the networks need to be more active and not leave it up to the individual showrunners. Yeah. I remember uh, I, I I did a bunch of interviews around the sh- old show community, uh, that, that comedy, and Dan Harmon, uh, I believe NBC was like, you have to have a 50-50 women-men split, I think, in season two. And that was, A, their best season, and right. B, like, there were so many great women writers who came out of that show and went on to do great things. So, like, uh, you talk about this in the book, and I'd like you to expound on a little, like, making the room more like the world 
makes for funnier comedy. And and kind of tell me how you arrived at that idea, because I think it's true. Well, I, I think, you know, the craft is the craft. And you know, I although I think women write the best dick jokes. And and I think it's like Jews write the best Christmas songs. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, Gary Shandling once told me I wrote like a guy. And I think there, there was a joke in my spec script for a show, which was Gary's in the kitchen and someone walks in and says, um, do, you, do you need an extra pair of hands? And he says, that would double my sex life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I think there are universal experiences that we all understand, but then there are experiences that are specific to genders and to skin colors and to sexual persuasions, and that's what you want in the room. I talk about when I'm on Warehouse 13, which is a show I love. Did yeah. you watch that show? I've, I watched. I, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched enough of it to know about it, yeah. Well, the second season I highly recommend, the one with H.G. Wells who was a woman. That yeah. was a twist. And, you know, it combined comedy and mystery and sci-fi. So I did an episode where Micah, the agent, becomes magically pregnant. Mm-hmm. And in the outline, I gave her this acute sense of smell. So I'm getting my notes uh, from the studio and the network, and they say, well, this smell, you know, is, is that a thing? And I say, yeah, you know, it's a lot of pregnant women get it. I got it. And they go, yeah, no, it just doesn't seem right, sound right. And um, I realized of the seven people on the phone call, I was the only one who'd been pregnant. That's an experience that you can draw from, you can pitch stories on, and and that really gives you a, a wider range. Yeah. You know, you mentioned in the book that you love comedy and you love sci-fi. And that's like not a Venn diagram intersection you see a lot. Tell me about how you developed your love for both of those types of storytelling. Um, you know, I grew up in this very uh, brainy family. And my sisters were always reading, you know, the Brontes and Jane Austen and, and during the summer. And I'd be sitting there reading my Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick. And I, I just... Um, love those worlds. In fact, in college, I took a independent study with Thomas Shippey, who's this uh, expert on Lord of the Rings. He actually studied with Tolkien. So I um, feel very comfortable. It's just so imaginative. And I love Star Trek. I love the Twilight Zone. Yeah. One of the things I know about working in Hollywood is like if you write a drama script, then you are forever pegged as a drama writer and vice versa. And like tell me about like how you made that switch from writing comedies to writing dramas. Well, it definitely became an issue because there there were years when people would would say, well, we won't consider her for comedy. She's a drama writer. And meanwhile, the drama people were saying, but she's a comedy writer. I think the good times slam right into the bad times, and life is not one or the other. So it just always felt really natural. If you're getting inside a character's head, then you can do that and be funny, and you can do that and and be dramatic. So when you got out of college, you worked, uh, shortly after that, you worked at Spy. Like, that was pretty soon after college, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah, And Spy, for a lot of journalists, is this kind of, like, mythical brigadoon <laughs> <laughs> like, was lost to the past. So I'm just, I, I don't even have a question. I just want you to tell me about what it was like to work at that place, because it was, it was uh, such a formative thing. Boy, I hope everyone at the age of 25 
gets the chance to work with people who share their sensibility. Spy was really snarky. It was really sarcastic. Being with people who say, that's not mean, that's funny, or that's not weird, that's funny, but it pushes you. So instead of pulling back, you're all encouraging each other, you know, faster, harder, meaner. I really think about like Spy, uh, Letterman, some of these things in the 80s that were like, we think about like snark arose with the internet because that's, you know, what my, my generation likes to congratulate itself for inventing snark, but it was there in the eighties. Like what was, yeah, you guys also think you invented hookups. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> well, probably true. Um, but t- tell me a little bit about like that culture that was emerging then of, that was like, you know, it wasn't afraid to poke power in the eye in a lot of ways. Right. And I think it was thumbing your nose. And the same feeling I got from Spy, I got the night I watched the first Simpsons on the air. Mm -hmm. Everyone was hugging at the end of sitcoms. Then you go to the Simpsons where, you know, they're at family therapy and they're hitting each other with foam bats. And then Homer says, wouldn't these work better if we took the foam off? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and I was like, I want to write for that. (laughs) <laughs> well, tell me about The Simpsons. You wrote the episode uh, One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish. I have that right, correct? I remember I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons as a young what? child. Uh, and then when I got to be... Wait, because it, it was a bad show? Because it was a... the, par- the kids were rude to the parents. That was like sort of oh. the specific reasoning. And uh, my parents are in the building right now if you want to talk to them about it. But <laughs> No, but so when I came to be a teenager, I started watching the syndicated reruns. And that was one of the first episodes I saw. And it was one of the ones that made me a Simpsons fan. So I'm very excited to be able to talk to you about it. Especially, I just, I thought it was so funny that Larry King was on the book, The Bible on Tape for some reason. Well, in the book, I talk about how originally, because he's reading Genesis, it was going to be Phil Collins. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about like working on that show in the very early days when it was still like, it was a sensation, but it was also like, how long are they going to be able to keep this going? You know? Yeah, and it wasn't a huge hit right out of the box. So to be, um, just to be clear, I wrote a freelance episode. I wasn't on staff. Yeah, but you walked in and you got to see those people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, everyone could fit in one room back then. And, and, um, you know, it was Jay and Wally and George Meyer and and Al and Mike and John Vitti and Sam Simon was the core group. And it was still early enough that, at one point, we were pitching, and someone pitched something for Ned Flanders, and I had to stop the room and say, who is Ned Flanders? Yeah, Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he'd, he'd only shown up like once uh, or twice, maybe. And the idea was that, which I brought in, Homer eats blowfish and thinks he's going to die, and what would you do in those last 24 hours on Earth? And it was a way to explore the character, because it was so new. You know, and I, I hope I tried to, I, I managed to capture that writer's room and also how, in some ways, it's the tamest stuff that ends up on air and just all the harsh jokes yeah. that are left in the room. Like at one point, Homer goes to see his father uh, and Grandpa Simpson says, you know, the greatest tragedy is to outlive your children. Uh But it doesn't feel so bad. Do you think that there is, um, do you think that television, that you can go too dark on a joke on television? I I suppose it depends on the show. It does. And 
You know, in Sabrina, we did an episode called, I think, Nerd Like Me, where Libby, the popular cheerleader, becomes a nerd. Sabrina casts a magical spell over her. And we we gave her an, an asthma inhaler and made a lot of jokes. She has to wear the broken glasses. And we get a letter from a mom saying, you, you know, my son has asthma and you made him feel terrible. You feel crappy. So you do have to be sensitive, you know, and it should be fair game, but you do have to be sensitive. Yeah, that's interesting. The thing that I took away from reading about your experiences on The Simpsons were that even just that one time working with James L. Brooks and Sam Simon, where they encouraged you to push for the emotion yeah. of the story. Tell me about like finding that, because as somebody who loves to write jokes, I know a lot of great joke writers who sometimes shy away from emotion, but you never have. So tell me about f- discovering how those two things could work together. Well, I think I did. And it, at Newhart, I was told you know, to make a joke, 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 joke. And so The Simpsons was sort of eye-opening for me. And then I followed The Simpsons with Coach, which is created by Barry Kemp, who, you know, he cut his teeth on Taxi with Jim Brooks and, and that gang. And Barry was a true believer in character comedy and discovering the joke, not writing to the joke. So... It is my favorite, and, and you know, I, I do hope in Sabrina, which, you know, it never, like, was a Pantheon show. It was um, for comedy, and sometimes I wish it would get rediscovered because it was pretty out there. It was really absurd, and it did have both, like, hard jokes and a lot of heart. Now that they're making a new one, I guarantee your show will end up on Netflix or Hulu or something so everybody can compare and contrast and then we'll because I feel like it's not on streaming right now. It is. It is, it, okay. it is on one of those. I can't Probably Hulu. Which. Hulu. Hulu seems to have all the old TV shows now. So. But, and we had like Brian Cranston was on yeah. our show and, and Chris Elliott and Dana Gould because those were all my friends. You know, yeah. Joel Hodgson from Mystery Science Theater 3000 was uh, a consultant on the show. You know, I, I, I you did mention Newhart, so I'm going to backtrack a okay. little bit because you were there at the last season. Which right, means you were there for the series finale, which is this famous episode of television. You were at the taping, correct? Yes, I was. What was that like when that? Because you hear the audience on the show that aired. You hear the audience go yeah. nuts when they reveal. Obviously, if you haven't seen it, the famous reveal of the end of Newhart. I'm going to spoil the whole show for you. <laughs> is that Bob Newhart wakes up in bed next to Suzanne Plachette, his wife from the Bob Newhart show, his 1970 show. So it's like a callback to that. It, it suggests the it, entire series was a dream. It's very funny. Right. It's it's a meta. And then I woke up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so what uh, that you hear the audience reaction. Is just out of this world, but I I know that sitcom that when you make it for TV, you have to cut it down. So tell me about was it even bigger than what we hear on TV? It was massive, and I, other people have written about this, but um, so I didn't put it in the book. But you know, there was another scene that was shot after that scene. Do you know this story? I don't know this story. No. So Mary Fran, who played Newhart's wife on the Vermont series, was very upset to find out that. The whole thing was a dream right. and that Bob was still married to to Emily. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the writers – and I think she – she's no longer with us. But uh, I think at the time she protested and was refusing to come out of her trailer. So the producers had to race and write another scene that they shot 
after that scene, which was basically then the reverse of the reverse, yeah. right? And and no, I think he then woke up in the bed with Mary Fran. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene never saw the light of day. <laughs> I don't even know if there was film in the camera. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite absurdist sitcoms. It's just so weird and funny and like so many strange things happen on it. And that was Barry Kemp yeah, too. Yeah, what did you learn cutting your teeth? Because that was like your first big regular TV job. So what did you learn cutting your teeth on a show that was so strange, you know? You know, you had Larry, Daryl, and Daryl, these woodsmen who came in and two of them didn't speak. And one of them uh, spoke in mainly non sequiturs. I like, they had such different voices. Mm -hmm. You know, you have Newhart, you had Tom Poston, you had Peter Scolari, you had Julia Duffy. And so what I really learned was that range of of writing for different voices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's classic character comedy. Yeah, that's great. I mean, Murphy Brown was like that too. You had really strong, consistent voices. You keep leading into my segues. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that good? No, that's great. That's great. Uh, Because I was going to be like, how am I going to get to Murphy Brown from here? And then you did it for me. (laughs) I just had Jean Smart on the show just very recently, uh, who was on Designing Women. And I talked with her about how there was this period where we had all these shows led by really strong women who were both strong actresses, but then also strong characters, like Designing Women, Murphy Brown, Roseanne. And then to me, even as like a teenage boy observing it from the outside, I felt like that went away like that, you know? know? And I'm wondering as someone who worked on Murphy Brown, as someone who was living in the middle of that, did it feel that way to you as well? Yeah. I, the first time I go to the Emmys, it's in 1990 with the Letterman show. And of the five nominated best comedy series, three and a half were created by women. Wow. Mm-hmm. You had Golden Girls, Designing Women, Murphy Brown, and uh, um, I think it's I think Wonder it's Wonder Years. Years. Wonder yeah. Years mm-hmm. was Carol Black, mm-hmm. and uh, Cheers was was the fifth. Yeah, and they needed three men to create that show. <laughs> so that's why there was this false sense that the problem was solved because not only were they considered the best comedies, they they were the most popular. Yeah, yeah. and I I don't know except that there must have been some sense like. We fixed it, so now we don't have to work on it anymore. It's really strange to me because you you think back even a little further, shows like Maud and shows like, uh, you mentioned the Golden Girls. Like, these weren't just shows about women. They were often shows about women who were over 40, sometimes even over 50. And, like, that's not on TV anymore, really. Like, sometimes you'll have a prestige drama if you can get, like, Glenn Close to come into your show. But, like, that's about it. Do you have thoughts as to why that happened? I I think it's cultural. It's a leadership issue. It's the the studios are still all run by men. Yeah. The networks are, aren't they all run by men? I I believe ABC is not, but yeah. You know, and so you have those issues. I was always asked, like, create something with a strong woman. Mm -hmm. And I tell the story about creating a show with Terry Hatcher at ABC and it's everyone loves it and it gets to Steve McPherson and he just goes, nope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, Shonda broke through and and maybe, you know, we're hitting another cycle. You know, I look at Scandal, which just ended its run. Think how long ago Condoleezza Rice was the actual Secretary of State. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in a Republican administration. 
And I think Hollywood's actually behind the times. Yeah. I've always I've felt that way do as you? well. Yeah. And I, I do notice like we are coming into another era of like we're doing these shows about strong women who aren't afraid to speak their minds. But we're tending to reboot the ones that we had before. Like Roseanne is back. Murphy Brown is coming back. Oh, you know uh, what just hit me the other day about Murphy Brown coming hmm. back is remember the whole Dan Quayle yes. was angry. She was a single mom. We're back to having a vice president who would get angry at Murphy Brown for being a single mom. Yeah. Like I I keep wondering like that show to me, it's an interesting era for that to be back because certainly it's the kind of show that was never afraid to thumb its nose at the administration. Then thumbing your nose at the administration. Now you never know it like if it's going to provoke a tweet storm of some sort, you know, I wonder if they're going to think about that at all. If you can think about that when you're writing it, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that's one of the reasons to bring it back now. <laughs> yeah, for from a business perspective, it I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, Mike Pence is the new Dan Quayle. Yeah. Tell me about when you were working on that show, it was such a, it had to be up to date with the issues and, and like topical comedy doesn't always age well. Like you go back and watch like a, a late night show from three months ago and you're like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So tell me about writing topical jokes, but like trying to keep an eye on the characters need to be consistent, like finding a way to write it for Nick at night 20 years down the road. Is that even possible? Well, Murphy Brown hasn't syndicated well, yeah. I think, as opposed to like Coach, which just seems to run forever on TBS or TNT. You know, I loved writing topical jokes. That's what I did at Letterman. My favorite hour of the day when I was at late night was when we would get our top 10 topics. And you would go into your office and just spend 45 minutes just writing all the jokes you could think of. So I that was one of the reasons I really did love working on that show. So when you created Sabrina, you must have been aware of the like comic strip or the comic book character. Yeah. Now, of course, if you went and did a show about comics, like you'd have to go and research very intently. But did you go back and like read some of those or did you just kind of take what you needed? I didn't. I had read them when I was a girl sure. mm-hmm. and I felt like I didn't want to have it in my head too much when I when I was creating this show because I had my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. I do want to shout out George Gladier was the name of the man who who created Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And people will go, why did you have her living with two ants? And I'd be like, well, it was in the comic book. (laughs) (laughs) I love Salem the Cat. Yeah, that was in the comic book too. (laughs) Um, But other than that, everything, you know, was, was created and it had to feel fresh and real and like someone from the mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. A show like that, has a lot of effects. It has things like Salem, which is an animatronic. Were you able to film in front of an audience or did you do We did it? not. You did not. Okay. And in fact, um, this is a little bit of a sore spot. You know, Seinfeld is often credited with the, like, we shoot three days, we do some single camera, some in set. Sabrina was doing that before Seinfeld mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. We came up with our own schedule, which was table read Monday morning, writers do a rewrite, Table read Tuesday morning, writers do another rewrite, run through Tuesday afternoon, and then shoot Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, yeah. By the way, if, if you want to know why I think uh, Hollywood 
stopped being interested in people over 40. I think it's Friends. Like, Friends, to me, is the... It's a great show, but, like, to me, that's, like, the demarcation point where everybody's like, what if they could be pretty and funny? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I agree. You look at Cheers and, like, I don't know that if you're making Cheers today, you'd have a character who, like, looks like Norm or is like Carla, you know? Yeah. It's it's such an interesting... It's an interesting phenomenon in that shift. Have you felt that as well when you've, like, been pitching ideas? I think that's true, but I also think there was this shift where... Comedy went away from characters and became actually Joel Hodgson always calls them joke delivery systems. Sure. Mm-hmm. And there used to be this tuna fish, what I call the tuna fish salad moment in Mary Tyler Moore. Rhoda would knock on the door. She'd come in. Hey, Mayor, what are you up to? I'm making a tuna fish salad. You want one? Uh, no. And then they'd get into the plot. And then years later, I was working on a show called The Preston Episodes. And I remember they someone wrote a joke where the neighbor bursts through the door, doesn't even knock, and says, can I use your bathroom? I've got a deer draining in mine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's no level of reality yeah. there. It's funny, mm-hmm. but that's a huge shift. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder if a lot of it is like, when you see comedies on network, especially today, they're cut to the bone. Like you have to get those down to like 20 minutes and 30 seconds yeah. a lot of the time. There's no room for Rhoda to be like, hey, I'm making a tuna fish salad, yeah. you know? I, and I, I right. Wonder, when I started, they were 25 minutes. Yeah. So you've, that's a huge loss. How do you, uh, how do you, like, obviously you're writing more hour longs now, but uh, did you feel that over the course of your comedy writing career, losing that time to commercials? Yes. And mm-hmm. I think it is one of the reasons why I moved. And, you know, if you're working on Monk or Warehouse 13, and actually NCIS is funnier than I think people, you know, it's got a character comedy feel to it. And and you can, I do love telling stories too. Yeah. And plotting stories and whenever possible, original stories. Yeah. You know, one of the things that started creeping in to TV was the graduates of NYU yeah. who studied TV writing. And when I started, nobody studied TV writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was this weird group of people who couldn't do anything else. And and one of my least favorite things is sitting in a room when someone pitches, oh, you know what we could do? You know, remember that gun smoke episode (laughs) where (laughs) this thing happened. We could do that. Or, oh, remember in Mission Impossible where everybody's phone goes off at the same time? We could do that here. And I always feel if something's been done, you should not do it. Right, right. That that's interesting to me because I I do feel like sometimes we get the best stories from taking things that have been done a lot of times and finding like a tweak there or something. Oh, sure. The twist is. Is fun, and that's why I loved actually working on Sabrina, because we got to do all those TGIF plots with the magical twist. So mm-hmm. Sabrina doesn't have a date for the prom. Well, how did they solve that? The ants take out the mando yeah. from the pantry, and they make her a date on the kitchen table. Yeah, I'm who just... turned out to be Brian Austin Green. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to hand you my notes because you keep getting me back to where I want to go. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Did the cat ever break down? That's a question I have to ask. Yeah, it had some servos that would occasionally not work. I think we we had two different ones. We had a lying down one and a sitting one. The cat that gave us the most 
problems was a real one. Yeah. It, they do not do what you want them to do. Cats are not known for being good actors, no. Like like the famous story is they needed a cat to go in front of a fire on a stage show. And so the, the cat trainer put it in a refrigerator for like, oh. which is horrible and oh. inhumane. And then, but of course, then the cat would run right to the fire when they set it loose. So, no. Well, I once wrote a coach episode where an old groundskeeper named Albie dies mm-hmm. and leaves his estate yeah. <laughs> to... Uh, Hayden, Craig T. Nelson. And there's all this, like, maybe he was one of those guys who was secretly hoarding gold in his trailer. And Hayden goes to the trailer and discovers it's just, he's inherited 60 cats. Yeah. And he has to bring them all to the house. And there's one scene where we needed a cat stampede. And and I vowed I would never (laughs) work with cats again. (laughs) And then you ended up with a cat regular. (laughs) But boy, Nick Bakai as the voice of Salem the cat was still one of the things that makes me laugh the hardest. Like the only thing that makes me feel alive is the sound of the can opener. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I think is really interesting about the Sabrina chapters, you talk about building a room with a 50-50 gender split, but then you kind of take yourself to task for saying we didn't get enough people of color's voices in the room. We didn't get as much diversity as we should have, even though like the diversity you were aiming for in the 1990s was like wildly unusual. And I think – you talk later in the book about how hard it can sometimes be to be confronted by your own internal biases and how you leap to, well, some of my best friends are fill in the blank. How did you get to a point where you were able to be like, huh, I could have done more, you know? You want awareness to lead to action and too often awareness leads to defensiveness. Right. And so I tried in the book to model someone who says I made a mistake Mm -hmm. and doesn't reel off all the excuses for that. Because I've heard all those excuses being used against women. Yeah. And, you know, I I should have looked harder and it should have been more important. And this is both on screen and behind this, the scenes. I think I was ahead of the curve when it came to gender. And I think I've, I'm right on the curve of intersectionality. And so when those conversations came up, you know, I needed to be taught. And, and I do hope I learned. Yeah. And I think it's okay to say, like, I I wasn't aware, and I was wrong, and I'm going to do better moving forward. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really right. I think that all we can do is take responsibility for what we've done, you know, and uh, find a way to make it, hopefully make it better in the future. But and we're all products of the culture. We're all biased. Women are biased against women. So one of the sad things is, you know, people who are more biased actually tend to claim they're less biased, <laughs> which is one of the weird twists on the whole thing. Yeah. So if if you find yourself saying, you know, I'm not sexist and I'm not racist, then you're probably not yeah. being tough enough with yourself. I mean, uh, uh, Donald Trump would say during the campaign, you know, he would say a whole thing about, uh, you know, Mexicans are rapists or whatever, and they'd be like, I'm the least racist person you I ever know. meet. And it was... That is an interesting phenomenon. I'd never quite thought about that that way. Yeah. Um, you do. T- you did mention that you have to look harder. And I'm wondering, how much harder do you have to look in those situations? You've been a showrunner and I haven't. So I'm wondering, like, how, how hard is it to uh, get past that initial wave of, here's a bunch of straight white guys who are very funny, you know? Right. Well, the agents can help. And what, what you need to do is have agents who care enough mm-hmm. 
to build up those rosters. So when people say, you know, we need a greater diversity in this room, they say, oh, well, here are some fantastic people. So often it's called a pipeline problem, Mm -hmm. and I don't think it is. I Mm -hmm. call it a broken doorbell problem, that there are people on the doorstep ringing the door and people aren't opening it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, Obama speechwriter David Litt on the show. Oh, recently. he's great. And yeah. He's wonderful. And he talked a lot about writing jokes for the president, so I don't want to completely replicate that experience. But you also wrote jokes for yes, the president. Yes, I did. David wrote them from the perspective of, I work in the White House. I see the president every so often. You wrote them from the perspective of, I work in the entertainment industry. Yeah. I occasionally write a joke for the president. Tell me about like what that was like when you had to be like capturing the voice of the most famous person on earth. <laughs> Well, I do see him as a sitcom character. I mean, (laughs) this is the leader of the free world who lived with his mother-in-law. And I always thought, oh, I wonder if I could pitch that. Um, And he was self-deprecating. I mean, I I quote Albert Brooks in my book saying that Obama had Johnny Carson's timing. Yeah. Um, So it was a real joy. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is arguably the most liberal city and the most liberal state. So, um, you know, I was proud to serve my country by writing jokes. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite joke you wrote for Obama? I um, he delivered a Matt Damon joke that got a lot of play about how recently, uh, you know, Matt Damon said he was disappointed in my uh, performance. Well, Matt, I saw the Adjustment Bureau (laughs) right back at you, buddy. And that got picked up a lot, and Matt Damon even commented on it. But the joke that I wrote that I loved the most was never done, Mm. and that was um, would have been the president saying, I just turned 50, which means I had my first colonoscopy, and you know what they found? Mitch McConnell. (laughs) That guy can obstruct anything. I have been in comedy writers' rooms, and you talk in the book about how journalists can never understand it for being there for a day. But I've been there for, you know, a day, and it's always fascinating to me to watch people just, like, slowly zero in on a a joke that's not working, but they know it's in the right place. It just needs to be, like, two clicks to the left, and they just slowly zero in on that. That's always, to me, I'm just fascinated by the process of that. Well, and then, you know, you can get a joke, it's perfect, and then you watch it on its feed, and you're like, oh, no, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) So there's so many moving parts, you know, and and then there are the lines. I, I talk about, you know, the biggest laugh at the Newhart table for my first script was Three words where Bob says, I feel bad. Yeah. And the line itself isn't funny, but it's all context and delivery. Yeah. Yeah. That alchemy of like the right actor saying yeah. the right words is so important. And like, is it fun to know like Bob Newhart's going to say this, Nick Bakai is going to say this, like knowing the voice that's going to come out of the, on those lines? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, that is a joy. I compare it to playing doubles with Serena Williams. <laughs> like yeah. if you can get your servant, she'll do all the work for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're kind of heading into the end, and I want to loop back to some of the stuff we talked about at, at the start. And one of the things that I, that doesn't come up in the book is, you know, it was like 10 years ago we had this whole thing about can women be funny, which was like the weirdest conversation ever. And I'm wondering, like, did you ever feel that prejudice of women aren't funny? Because you don't talk about it a ton in the book. It's sort of there, here and there, but not like. I, I refuse to name him in my book. <laughs> um, and that was a big setback. That that was um you know, and boy, replace that with with any other uh, 
group of people, and you can see just how hurtful that notion is. Uh, it, it's tough, and I remember someone once asked Sarah Silverman for advice for women in comedy, and she said, be undeniable. Mm-hmm. And I agree with her, and at the same time, boy, that's a really high bar yeah. for women to have to get over. Yeah. And what about, like, just, like, really solid? <laughs> like, <laughs> that should be good. Men can get by by being really solid. Women should should be able to do that also. And then there's just broadening our sense of what we think is funny. And that's important, too. And and that's a separate issue. Yeah, yeah. You do talk, like you talked about how when you were working on Letterman, we didn't yet have language for sexual harassment for these sorts of things. When you were trying to break into the industry then, did you have language for this kind of weird prejudice we seem to have against women who are doing very funny, you know? No, but you get a lot of like you're not like other women, right? <laughs> and yeah. and now you know I, I quote Alexandra Petrie from the Washington Post saying I used to think if I was the only girl in the room I was special. Now I know there was a problem. Yeah, and I was not the only funny woman on the planet. Mm. And I tell this story about having a discussion with a guy who tells me I'm lucky. And I say, why? And he goes, well, every show is looking for a woman. And I say, a woman and nine men. Yeah. How does that make me lucky? You know, the odds of a female writing an X-Files episode um, were less than the odds of surviving the Hunger Games. Yeah. I think about <laughs> that show. Was, I, I'm, I'm writing a book about that show. And that show was on the air for 10 seasons before people were like, why don't you have more women writers? I'm like... This last season, they had a few epi- a few episodes written by women, and one of them was the best episode of the season. So, yeah. it, it's, it's didn't a, you like my uh, my? There's uh, a great story. Knows Mia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, and that's another thing I want to ask about is like you talk about a lot about in the book disappointment and learning to deal with it. How did you learn to deal with the time when you think you're going to write an X Files episode, yeah. and then it gets taken from you, or you think you're going to get to work on Seinfeld, and then it gets taken from you. So, how did you learn to deal with that sort of disappointment? Um, well, that's when having a sense of humor really <laughs> comes in handy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I also I did have a stable family. I I had great friends. I mean, I vented a lot, and yeah. um, I tried to keep a lot in the air. But also the X Files, so I get bumped. I sell them a story, I write the outline, and I end up getting bumped by Stephen King. Right. Right? And then, you know, that's like you're painting a mural and Picasso comes by and says, mind if I take over? You're like, have at it, Pablo. Just kind of as a a last question here, we've had in the past year the Me Too movement. We've had this conversation about... You know, oh, me too. That's all you men want to talk about. Uh, no, I, but I, 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 I promise I'm pivoting somewhere else, which is to say, do you feel like things are, do you feel like this is turning a corner? Do you feel like we're in a moment where we're starting to move toward something more equitable? Do you feel like Hollywood has gotten better for women over the course of your career? Or do you feel like, obviously, we still have a ways to go, but do we still have a long way to go? You know, is, I guess what I'm asking. Yeah, it depends what data you're looking at. Um, mm-hmm. The numbers are higher for percentage of women in the rooms. The number I'd like to see is what percentage of the budget, yeah. of the writing budget women are taking, because my sense is you're, 
you're seeing a lot more women at lower levels, mm-hmm. um, but the higher-ups are still, the leadership is still very male. Uh, so, you know, you can cherry-pick the data to make it look better, but I, I go back to the year Catherine Bigelow won the Oscar for Best Director was followed by a year where there was a drop-off mm. of women directing movies. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of work left to be done. We end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm okay. I'm ask you three of them. The first one is, who is the writer you have learned the most from, living or dead, that you've never met? Well, you know, Stephen King. Yeah. I love this book on writing. And yeah. um, so in spite of what he did to me, I'll go with Stephen <laughs> King. <No. laughs> I hope you get to meet him. I would him. like to meet him yeah. very much. Yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating guy. I've never met him, but I've, I've seen him speak. He's great. Yeah. What's like the last... TV show you watched, movie you uh, movie you saw, album you listened to, just like the last pop culture thing you did, book you read, and what did you think of it? Well, I just watched an episode of Trust. Oh yeah, last we night were talking the, about that. the yeah. Getty show by Danny Boyle, mm-hmm. and there are moments where you go, "Oh, that's a good camera shot." <laughs> like he really knows how to work the camera, but then also just lets the story unfold. Do you ever find yourself distracted by that as someone who's directed, as someone who's written like, oh, that's just like, do you find yourself taken out by like, well, what a great story turn that was or what a great shot that was, you know? I I do. One of the things though I'm happy about is I don't try to guess plots. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of writers do, but I, I can let myself just be in the moment and enjoy the story. Mm-hmm. And finally- Because it feels like work, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not getting paid to figure out this story. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, do you revisit your old work? Do you like to go back and watch stuff that you previously worked on? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, and I tell this story in the book about I've directed a couple of movies, and yeah. I haven't watched them since we locked picture. And one of my mentors with for directing was the great Arthur Penn, yes. who directed Bonnie and Clyde and Little Big Man, just an incredibly empathetic, wonderful, brilliant man. And one day I said to him, you know, I've never been able to go back and watch my movies, but, you know, they're crappy little cable movies. You know, have you gone back and watched yours? And he said, no, it's too painful. Mm. And I said, really? And he said, you always remember the compromises. Mm. Yeah. And it's true. You just think about the, how that scene was cut short because it started raining and you didn't get the take you wanted. And you just you know, how the network forced you to hire an actor that wasn't as good as the other actor. And you always remember the compromises. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is just the funny parts. If you are interested in TV writing, if you're interested in comedy writing, if you're interested in uh, issues of gender inequality and all of these things, it's a great book to read. I very much loved it. Nell, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Todd. The residents of the I Think You're Interesting Writer's Room, they're pretty much just me. I'm Todd Vandorf, the host and executive producer of the show. But every week I confer with my wonderful producer, Bridget Armstrong, and we we come up with uh, what the show's going to be. Fox Podcasting, headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. 
Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering is thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode at the P3 Post studio in Hollywood, California. Our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, helps people find the show. You can email me if you have something you want to say that's not in a review to Todd at Vox.com if you just want to request a guest or if you just want to, you know, tell me that I'm doing something wrong. You can email the whole show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com, itye.podcast at Vox.com. We read all your mail. You can also... Tweet at me at TVOTI. That's Tavoti, T-V-O-T-I. We're going to be back next week with another one of my favorite writers. I hope you're enjoying our special theme month. But until then, Fugumi. <laughs>